They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. Ha <laughs> ha. Now I'm baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. I'm a never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got crazy. I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. Welcome to the Changing the Culture podcast with your host, me, Autumn Clifford. This is the only self-help podcast hosted by a female cop. I want to welcome you. If you loved that intro, then I want you to go to the end of my podcast and make sure you listen to that music, that tune. It's called Baptized in Blue by One Time Music. He's a fellow police officer. You can find him anywhere you can listen to um, music. He's amazing. I'm really excited to have you here. I hope that you enjoy this podcast episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you. Jim, I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Sure. I'm uh, Jim Dudley and I'm just south of San Francisco, California in Redwood City. And um, I had a career with San Francisco police, uh, 32 years there. Uh, I was a um, patrol officer for nine years and then made sergeant and inspector. That's what we call our detectives. Uh, Lieutenant, captain, uh, commander, and deputy chief uh, my last five years as the uh, deputy chief of patrol and uh, investigations. And uh, I took a long uh, vacation after my uh, retirement. It was two weeks after retirement. I started teaching at San Francisco State and I uh, teach at San Francisco State University in criminal justice uh, classes. I've uh, been there for uh, going on eight years now. And I have two sons in the department with San Francisco PD. I have a lot of friends still there working cops. Uh, I've done my podcast, Policing Matters, for about four years now. And um, I'm a consultant. Uh, I'm still a member of PERF and IACP and I'm an FBI National Academy graduate, so I'm still with them. And um, every year, usually, it didn't happen this year, but usually I go to a conference uh, to keep my skills honed and uh, keep my expertise up to date. And uh, this year, um, not much of that happening. Because <laughs> of COVID. Well, that is quite a resume, and that's why I'm so excited to have you on. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your career. It seems like you've done a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, I love patrol. I love pushing a radio car and problem solving. And San Francisco is like one of the most beautiful cities, regardless of what you're hearing these days. Uh, <laughs> it's still an awesome city. Uh, we're paid very well. Uh, I think it's uh, 88000 for a recruit to sit first day in the police academy. Wow. Um, by their second year, they're making about 125000 Um It's a beautiful city. We've got uh, about 900,000 people, uh, about 1,800 sworn cops. Wow. So our city's only 49 square miles, but uh, it's exciting. And we're broken up into 10 districts. And of the districts, I worked in five of them, um, actually out of those stations. And, um, and then I had the run of the department as a commander and as a deputy chief. So A lot of the fun parts were, uh, as I moved up the chain, uh, I was the captain at uh, district stations, but I was the captain of our juvenile bureau. 
um, just after uh, Megan's law came into effect. And I went to the um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Arlington, Virginia. I got great training there. I, I had sleepless nights worrying what we would do. We didn't have a, a, a plan for uh, abducted kids. And that really kept me up at night. And I felt better after doing that. And I'm interviewing uh, John Clark, the, the president of the NCMEC next week. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so they're doing really great stuff, human trafficking and children. Um, investigations was a lot of fun for me. Um, uh, I was in a unit that primarily investigated domestic violence and family violence uh, before we broke off into our own SVU. Mm. Burglary, um, violent crime, um, and then I was the uh, principal uh, planner uh, and coordinator for our special events. So um, America's Cup on the Bay of the racing um, sailboats and all the crowds that went with it. Um, and in Maine, I don't know if you guys had a, a ton of championships out there. I know Boston's had a couple south of you, but uh, I don't know what you guys have. We've had uh, the Giants uh, World Series champs for three years out of uh, about six. And uh, we had the 49ers go to the Super Bowl a couple of times uh, while I was uh, working. And um, those yeah. events were fun, but I, as you can imagine, a nightmare to yeah. police. And, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. We have something like 200 planned events with over 100,000 people, um, including uh, New Year's Eve, St. Patrick's Day, Chinese New Year, the Pride Festival, Halloween, just off the hook. Holy cow. Yeah, crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely a lot busier out there. <laughs> just, to, just to answer your question. So like Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, we're all like all of our sports is that's like the Patriots and the Celtics and the Red Sox. So yeah, yeah. in Maine, we don't get to have as cool things like you do sports uh, um, games and stuff like that. So Jim, what made you want to be a police officer? Is your father a police officer? No, I mean, actually counter to that, um, growing up in San Francisco, relatively poor. Uh, it's not great growing up poor in a big city like that with no money. And uh, single mom, six kids, uh, everybody running, you know, like cats. And um, at an early age, uh, I had a bicycle stolen. It sounds like, you know, made up story, but I had a bicycle stolen and uh, I told my mom and she said, call the police. And I said, okay. And I called and somebody came and um, I said, hey, they're here. And she said, well, go talk to them. And I was like 10 or 11 at the time. And I went down and I um, talked to the cop and he talked to me like, you know, like a human being, not like a insignificant kid. And I always remembered that. Mm. And, uh, you know, the interactions that you have with young people are really important. Yes. And they remember it. And I and I did and never got the bike back, of course, but it, it was a really good lesson. And I knew by about the middle of high school that I wanted to get into law enforcement, that I like the idea of problem solving and working outside and having my own freedom to do uh, you know what I needed to do and uh, I joined the reserves in uh, county south of San Francisco when I was um, 19 20 21 22 I got my first job San Francisco Airport Police we were a small department then we've since joined with San Francisco PD and then uh, a year later 
about a year and a half later, I joined San Francisco PD. And um, it was just an experience that, uh, you know, I knew nobody in the department. I knew no one in policing. Uh, I had an AA at the time in uh, criminal justice from my junior college. And I realized soon that I had to go back and get my bachelor's. I did that. And then um, later on, I got my master's degree uh, from UC Irvine. And they really helped. They really helped as, uh, you know, I promoted and moved up. But uh, like I said, the first nine years of patrol were probably the most fun. And um, 1989, I was involved in a uh, fatal shooting. And um, as you can tell, I'm talking about a fatal shooting. I wasn't the one killed. Um, and it was, uh, it was a harrowing uh, time in San Francisco. And uh, I really had to sort of take stock into whether or not I wanted to continue in the job. I had two really small kids. My two boys that are policemen now are, were like one in three at the time. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was a you know, fork in the road where I had to decide whether or not I wanted to continue. And luckily, or maybe in- coincidentally, I had I hurt my knee while wrestling with the suspect before he pulled a gun and fired a shot at me and I hurt my knee. So I was off for two or three weeks. And in San Francisco, we have a mandatory, then it was three days off. And then you have to go see the psychiatrist, the psychologist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they clear you, you go back to the range, you get your gun and you go through the uh, use of force uh, continuum and all that again. Mm-hmm. And that was all uh good. I went back and two nights back, I'm chasing a group of kids and two of them drop guns on the street. I'm, you know, oh, I'm like, really already? And, uh, but it was fun. I, I have no regrets. I had a great career. I've had so many opportunities. Yeah. You know, Quantico, Virginia for nearly three months. I went to Harvard for a month uh, yeah. with PERF, with the uh, Senior Management Institute for Police. Um, just so many opportunities and um, really enjoyed it. You loved it. So you, so when, what year did you get in? 1980. In the 80s. So was policing different back then now than what it is now? Oh yeah. I mean, well, in high school in San Francisco, we had the zebra murders, um, a bunch of um, uh Black guys out of a um, Islamic church were going around kill, randomly killing uh, white people on the street. Oh wow! Uh, we had the zebra, uh, the uh, the Zodiac uh, murders, the crazy Zodiac guy running around the Bay Area killing couples in lovers' lanes, and uh, we had a strangler who was going on the hillside. The hillside strangler was killing people hiking and wow uh, we had the jonestown if you heard of the jonestown uh mm-hmm. church uh that moved from san francisco to, to guiana and uh, over 500 people were uh urged into suicide they didn't know it at the time well you know the everyone knows the adage of drinking the kool-aid right well yeah. jim jones uh the the church uh, messiah the false messiah um, was really strange, manipulative guy. And he got 500 plus San Franciscans, uh, took them to Guyana and uh, mixed up a batch of Kool-Aid with cyanide in it and uh, killed them. Unreal. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all growing up. Uh, wow. 
the AIDS epidemic hit in the early 80s, but uh, before that, it was a, a time in San Francisco when uh, if you're walking down the street, you know, you guys might jump out of a car and beat you up if they thought you were gay. And so wow. it was a really um, tumultuous time, uh, violent. And um, the year before I got in, a cop was killed. Um, it was an undercover street crime, street crimes cop, and he was shot and killed. And I thought, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to give it a whirl and see wow. how it goes. And uh, like I said, it was a great career, great opportunities, had a chance to save some people. They've, you know, done like many of you have done CPR. My CPR record's not so great. My CPR, I think I'm like two for five. Wow. Um, but, but I've had other chances. And, um, you know, I always saw myself as an ambassador. And I, I think that's why I teach now. And that's why I podcast to get the word and speak on behalf of cops who maybe their chiefs or their sheriffs can't speak out because of their positions. And, um, you know, I, I get called a lot by, um, you know, the, the press, the media, and I'm always happy to try to explain because I think that's one of the worst things we do in policing. We don't explain ourselves well yes, enough. Yes, 100%. And I believe that, you know, if, if you can be an ambassador, uh, tell the side of the story that's not being heard. And, and I think, um, you know, to do otherwise is to just let this false narrative float out there and become truth for people. I, I get so many, so many students who just have these really twisted perceptions of policing and, you know, they, they believe in these urban legends. It's crazy. Yeah. hundred percent. What, what do you think, like, what's the most common like misconception that you have had to like correct as far as like the media or your students thinking about us police officers? Well, I mean, you know, with students, they think that cops can just, you know, that, that we're like the secret police. We could just grab them and scoop them off a street corner and take them in. I know. <laughs> they believe that. And then um, the other one is, you know, especially now when there's so much social media, Facebook or what have you on um, uh, sovereign citizens. And so there's this misconception that you don't have to show a license. You don't have to get out of your car. And oh, those were fun, right? Yeah. Really? You don't have to get out of the car? I know. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are probably, you know, some of the biggest misnomers. And then the other one is, you know, somebody gets their car broken into and they're like, well, where are the DNA swabs? Uh, I know. See, your thank you, blood... Miami. <laughs> yeah, right. Where's your blood spatter analysis? Where's yeah. Dexter? Well, yeah, where are these guys? Yeah, so that's the other one is, um, you know, everybody wants, you know, the whole nine yards brought out for their crime. And, and, you know, they're tapping their foot as you pull up to take their auto burglary with Christmas presents that were in the back seat. And they say, you know, what took you so long? And you say, well, I was taking a report down the street because some other idiot had a bunch of stuff in his back seat. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what do you think? So here's the thing. I, I, <laughs> when I started uh, police work, the, the guys that taught me were probably, they might even be older than you, Jim. I mean, the, these guys were. Wow. Is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I meant like they were old, old. I don't know. Like old school cops, like real old school. And um, I, I would just, you know, because 
I don't know, is, you, you know the movie Colors? Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, yeah. Is it based out of LAPD and not San Francisco? LAPD, that's Robert Duvall and Sean Penn. Yeah, but that's like what I'm thinking of. Like when you're telling me like that's how like you, like that's like what your career was. Is it, was it like that? A little, I mean, very cartoonish, but a little bit like that. I mean, especially when, um, you know, the mid eighties hit and the crack epidemic hit. Yes. San Francisco. And I think my partner and I were, probably grabbed the first one in like 1983 or 84 when um, you know this guy comes walking out of the public ho- housing projects and he sees us you know everybody knows the look right and he takes something and drops it and it flutters to the ground and it's a little plastic baggie with what looked like a tooth in it and I was like wow this guy just like walks around with his own teeth in a bag right and I, looked at it, and I squished it a little bit and it then it looked like soap chips and we had sent guys from narcotics to training to, to get out front of crack before it got there and I uh, called them and asked them hey does this look like crack to you and the guy looks at it and he breaks off a piece and says yeah this is crack and that was the beginning and next thing you knew guys are running around the street and um, we have a bunch of one-way streets in San Francisco. Some go, you know, up hills, and usually it was women stopping at a red light, and we had the red light bandits. So we'd have these guys run out. Somebody would pound on the driver's window. The other guy would go in, open the door, grab the purse off the seat, and run off. And, Come on! Oh, all the time. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, we had so many tourists come through San Francisco. They were just, you know, victims on the hoof. And uh, yeah, it was, it was like the Wild West for a while in the 80s. And then um, in the 90s, th- things seemed to calm down more. And I think it really aligned with the national strategies of uh, determinate sentencing and mandatory minimums and juveniles charged as adults and, you know, crackdown of chronic offenders. And yeah. I mean, I think we're swinging away from that, right? I mean, we're in an era now where we're doing the opposite. We're closing in San Francisco, they closed down the juvenile justice center. So there's no more holding, um, secure holding juveniles. So you can have a 17 year old rapist murderer and they've got to hold them somewhere at a facility one-on-one and then ship them off out of state. Are you serious? Yeah. What, what's going on with that? Kids can't commit crimes, Autumn. Are you kidding? <laughs> what was I thinking? Come on. So now, you know, there's a, in California, I think it's um, Senate Bill 1391 says now that you cannot charge a uh, juvenile up to the age of 20 as an adult, that you have to petition a judge if they're between 18 and 20, you've got to petition a judge to um, arrest them and hold them with other adults. Wow. And that's under scrutiny right now at the uh, state Supreme Court level. But I mean, that's how far things are that, uh, you know, everybody's an advocate. Everyone thinks, you know, uh, nobody, you know, it's it, the tables are switched, right? Cops are the bad guys now mm-hmm. and nobody should be in jail. And certainly nobody uh, should be in jail now in times of COVID. Right. And we, we got to let them out because, you know, they were 
following the rules and well behaved before they went to prison. Right? Exactly, hundred percent. And, and and they'll start, they're going to start following the laws and everything now. Right. You know, Wear a mask, washing their hands, and staying away from their pals. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. They're going to be social distancing. <laughs> social distancing. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Okay, so obviously you've been around for a minute. Do you think that you've seen? Do you do you think you've seen any repetitive like like a like what's going on in society? Like, let me ask you this because like in the '90s, of course, that was when I was growing up. So I was growing up in the '90s, but isn't that is all that is when community policing was originated in NYPD, right? Because they they needed to see you know more police officers out there. They're trying to that was how they were trying to deter crime is to put the cops out there be in the businesses, do the things. And, right. and then you said in the seventies and eighties was the crack epidemic, you know, and then we had like tough on drugs policing, as you said. So would you say what, you know, and then we had in um, early 2000, we, you know, in the two thousands we had Ferguson. So then came our body uh, cameras, which that, that, that was a blessing. At first we thought it was a curse, but total blessing because 99% of the, us do the right thing. Um, you know, but then, you know, so now here we are today. And I'm just curious, like, do you think that it's just the, that, like, is that, is this how law enforcement progresses? This is like, it's kind of like we hit rock bottom and then we bounce back, hit rock bottom, bounce up. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's cyclical. It is a pendulum. We swing left and then we swing right. We never stop in the middle. Um, so, you know, we'll see a couple of years of this and then I think we'll swing right again. And, I mean, we just found out that Oregon voted in uh, decriminalization of drugs, any drug, right? And it was funny when they proclaimed themselves as uh, the first state in the nation to decriminalize drugs. Well, of course, California was first uh, in 2014 with Proposition 47, uh, any drug, heroin, crack, uh, Rohypnol, the date rape drug, why that was on the, the list. Yeah, serious. All of those uh, misdemeanor or misdemeanor slash infraction um, penalties for possession, for personal use. And who's roofing themselves? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, we did it. We did it. And, um, you know, with the Boise uh, ruling in, in Boise, Idaho, we can't move encampments or open camping off the streets or sidewalks. And if you go to uh, YouTube, you can see videos on Seattle and San Francisco and LA and just how out of control it is with the homeless and street use. Um, if you're familiar with Heather McDonald, I walked with Heather McDonald through uh, downtown San Francisco and guys were trying to sell her fentanyl and you know they had suitcases full of stolen property with the tags still on them and just out of control. And there's nothing cops can do. Cops are stuck in the middle. So we'll see it happen in the social experiment of California and Oregon. And you'll see other states decriminalize drugs too. Because there's that, there, oh, that's the other misconception the students have that there's this huge percentage of prisoners that are in there for a joint or a handful of drugs. And of course that's not true. In California, I think the high was, <laughs> no pun intended, the high was about 16% of California prisoners were there for drugs. For federal prison, it was about 50%. But if, if you think federal, 
you're thinking about, you know, kingpins and boat loads and truck loads and train yeah. loads and airplane loads of dope. Yes. So that makes sense. And they're there for longer sentencing. So that makes sense. But the idea that everybody's in jail for drugs, that's okay. I'm going to swear. That's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. It, the social experiments will, you know, go the way, and um, I think we'll see it now with, you know, defunding and telling uh, agencies that they don't want them to deal with homeless issues or those with mental illness or other social problems. And I think chiefs should get together and say, yes, let's do this. Let's get rid of these things and let's. You know, let's let them do it and run away before they give it back to us. Yep, hundred percent. I've you know, talked I, about. Um, I've written about uh, mission creep in several articles that I write for Police One, and and it is when we got to naloxone, when they took away arrest and putting people away for heroin and opiates, and gave cops the antidote to revive people with overdoses, I thought that's the limit. I mean, we are completely on the other side of policing to where all we're doing is literally like putting band-aids on things. And 100%. It's mission creep. There's there's no way cops should be doing some of the things that they do. Yep. Yeah. And then we get jammed up or, you know, we don't get a good look because we're like, we're way outside the scope of policing. I mean, a lot of my, I have to tell you, I mean, a lot of I spent a lot of time, too much time, uh, you know, parenting children, going and dealing with, you know, these runaway kids and just all this stuff. And it's just like, where's the social? Yeah, let's get the social workers out here. And now let me ask you this. What's your opinion on police reform? On police reform to the point of? Well, I don't know, but like, just your opinion at all. Like, do you think that we need reform? Like in policing? I think I think we really do need to. I mean, and if you run, if you Google Jim Dudley SFPD, uh, I've been sued twice by police. Uh, one who okay. fired a shot uh, through the windshield of an 18-year-old driver, who had shot a guy the day before, but uh, it was a complete mess up. Well, this cop was involved in 15 shootings in less than 15 years. So I had a thorough investigation done, took him off the streets. And in that time, he filed a federal suit, civil rights claims, um, saying he was wronged, he was being withheld promotion and financial incentives and blah, blah, blah. And we, I won, I prevailed after three months in federal court. Wow. I believe we really, I think middle managers should hold accountable the cops that uh, you're going to make me swear again, that F up. <laughs> if, a, if a cop Fs up and it's not, and if it's a, it's a mess up of the mind and not the heart, right? If you do something by mistake because you're trying to do good, I'm cool with that, right? And you have my backing and I'm with you and I'll sit by you at the discipline hearing and speak on your behalf. But if you said, oh, screw this guy, I'm going to take his car and take his car keys and take his shoes and leave him out here walking. And then the guy gets, you know, beaten to death on the side of the road or something. Well, that's, that's, a, that's messed up. Right. And that should be held accountable too. But the idea that, you know, when you promote to sergeants and I don't know the rank of, of you know, some of uh, 
your your people here. But if you're a sergeant, I mean, I my advice is stop being everybody's buddy. Um, you know, you may be able to go out and have a beer, but have a beer, get up and leave. Uh, if you're going to play on the softball team, play on the softball team. Game's over, get up and leave. Uh, the guys that are real buddy buddy, or the gals that are real buddy buddy, tend to have a difficult time properly supervising their people. And, and it's even worse when you're a lieutenant and a captain. And, you know, if you want to be a loved sergeant, lieutenant, captain, then do it for that. But if you want to be good at your job and if you, if you want to hold people accountable who need it, then I think that's that's a noble thing to do, and I think that's what you get paid the extra money for and get the extra training for. And I don't think enough I don't think enough uh, managers and middle middle managers and executives I don't think they do their job good enough. 100%. And then the public's going to do it for us, and so we're going to end up, you know, with with the chauvin, uh, you know, setting the tone for every good cop out there. Yes. And, all right. you know, and you bring up a lot of good points and, and especially in leadership. And I, I will just say that I do think that in our culture uh, as law enforcement and first responders, but I'm not a firefighter, so I can't speak to that. But I will say that I do really think that our culture lacks for leadership, solid leadership. And I think you know, when we look at it as far as the here's how I look at it is if I take care of my people, meaning I, I'm holding them accountable and, but I'm wanting them to grow when I'm being, you know, I'm leading them, sitting down with them, guiding them, mentoring them. But also, you know, that is also helping the community and, and the community might not understand that or like these leaders in there, they don't understand that when you are like, when you can supervise your people to be good cops, like you said, not out there, you know, doing bad things, you know, it, you know, they, it helps everybody. And, and here's the thing is, when you have a, a leader who you respect, who's out there doing good work, you, you want to rise up to be like that supervisor, you know? And I, and I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I worked for a lot of really bad leaders. I had a few good ones. It was, it was, it was like far in between to have a good leader versus, you know, somebody kind of just like you said, here I'm being liked. I had a Sergeant who would, who was Mr. Nice guy to everybody, you know, and, but he wasn't, he didn't help me become better. Mm-hmm. I, I knew he wasn't going to jam me up, but like he didn't help me become better. Um, you know, and then I've, I've had some really good supervisors. I, I don't know. I, it's one of my favorite subjects too. And especially I'm sure, you know, you've moved up the ranks. What do you think that your biggest obstacle was as a leader to being an effective leader in policing? Um, that's a good one. I don't know. I think, I think when I first started any assignment and I moved around, you know, they don't want you to be there anywhere for more than three years, especially if you promote up. So if you're a patrol person, you can stay as long as you want in your assignment. Once you make sergeant, you're here three years, they move you there. You're there three years, they move you. So I think for me, my biggest obstacle was everywhere I went, whether sergeant, lieutenant, captain, commander, um, I always got the side eye on why are you doing this and is this a trap? Um, so there was that distrust and until they figured you out, until they figured out that you weren't there to catch. If you, if I came out of lineup as a captain or a lieutenant and said, hey, 
Jonathan, you and me tonight. I'm jumping in with you. We're going to hit your beat. Tell me what's happening. Uh, you know, what's going on in your district, right? Jonathan's like, what the hell? Frick, can't somebody else take Dudley? Anybody else, right? <laughs> Britt, uh, Natalie Britt, take him, please, right? And it takes people some time to figure out that I'm not doing it to catch you doing something wrong. I wanna, I wanna, you know, hear what you're saying, right? And some some guys, once they figured that out, God, I couldn't get them out of my ear, right? Like I'd be interviewing somebody and like, what's going on? What's the biggest, you know, the toughest uh, obstacle to your job? And hey, I'm not talking to you, whatever cap, I'm not talking to you. We could ride, we'll go get a donut and a cup of coffee, but I'm not telling you anything. And then at the end of the night, the guys follow me into my office. I can't shake them, right? Uh -huh. everything but uh you know i told my my two sons i go look you're going to meet a lot of people who knew me and they're going to either love me or hate me i think that's that was the divide for me right like uh some guys loved me and loved the fact that i was holding people accountable and other people were on the wrong end of that deal and had nothing good to say about me and one time my son who's the sergeant of the uh, gang task force uh, comes up to me and goes, oh, yeah, I met another one of those guys today. Really <laughs> not a big fan of yours. That's like, when he said not a big fan, the guy probably said your dad was a dick or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what did you think when you had two boys that ended up being police officers? I think it's great. Um, you know, everybody's like, gosh, you should tell them to get out now. But um, they both really like it. And I mean, I, they must have heard something good about, you know, when I'd come home from work and talk about a little bit. I, I tried not to say too much about work. Um, and it's funny now I'll be in settings where I'll tell a work story and my sons will say, you never told us that, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when my oldest son um, took the... Uh, the police exam, I didn't know it. I mean, he never asked me and never asked me for pointers or anything. Wow. And he was in college and he came home and he and I were, I was divorced already and he and I were living together. And he came home and said, hey, I took the test today and I think I did pretty good. I said, awesome, how good? And he goes, oh, really good. I said, oh, I said, what subject was it? And he said, uh, it was a police test. And I was like, what? And I had no inkling, I had no idea he even applied. Wow. And he's really smart. Um, and he'll listen to my podcast and he'll call me and say, no, no, no. I think this is what you mean. Or <laughs> you should talk to this guy, interview this guy. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. You don't know the difference between gang injunctions and gang en enhancements, he's telling me. <laughs> well, I don't either. So there you go. <laughs> Well, that and so it was. It's been a really positive experience then to have your your kids be police officers. Yeah, I mean, I worry about them, but I I've always told them from the academy, learn it and live it. Right? I mean, don't just sit there in the and let it, you know, go by. Uh, really understand what it is they're teaching you. Um, I learned a valuable lesson in uh, in the shooting that I was in in that I don't even remember pulling my gun from the holster. And wow. I tell them, if you remember your training and you really uh, adhere to it and you practice it, you go to the range and you practice the way they teach you. You know, when I first started in policing, you 
you know, we had the six wheel gun, right? Bang, 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 stop, dump the shells in your hand, put them in your pocket, reload, bang, 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 dump the shells, put them in your pocket. Well, those are um, cop killers, right? Yeah. I mean, we've seen so many incidents where cops stuck to that training and they end up getting shot, you know, top of the head, reloading their gun, right? Wow. And so, you know, we, we've moved beyond that and maybe, maybe a little too far beyond that because, you know, I think sometimes we, we just drill into young people in the academy that you're going to get killed if yeah. you don't do this, mm -hmm. right? The guy doesn't show his hands, better be ready. And, you know, in, in some cases, I think that's backfired on us. And uh, we, you know, last week, this very progressive district attorney whose parents were in the weather underground, the, the father's still in prison for killing a guard uh, during a robbery. Um, the DA just charged a, a young cop four days out of the police academy. Uh, this, this guy knocks down a woman driving a lottery truck, probably figures the truck's full of money, takes it, goes, knocks her down on the ground. Somebody calls police, there goes the van. Two cops take off after the van. They chase it all over town, get to a dead end. And just as they're stopping, before they could jump out of their car, the, the robbery suspect jumps out of the van, runs at the police car, and apparently he's running to run past it because he's in this blocked um, cul-de-sac. And as he's running past the young officer's uh, window, four days out of the academy, he's left-handed, he pulls his gun, fires through the window, hits the guy in the head and kills him. Wow. And it's been almost a year. Uh, the, the chief fired him for not passing probation. And um, he's hung out to dry. And he's being charged with second degree murder, manslaughter. Wow. Four days out of the academy. And I what's the last thing they teach you at the academy? Simulations. Shoot, don't shoot, right? Yeah. You're after a guy who robbed somebody he's running at you. You know, I think, I think more of those accidental shootings um, come from, you know, people that are over, overhyped, maybe panicked a little bit. And, um, you know, I'm sure it wasn't what he planned to do, but I don't think he deserves being charged with manslaughter or homicide. No. And then at like, what point is the Academy not liable or li you know what I mean? For, I, Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So how did you balance being a dad and raising kids? Well, I mean, you heard my story, single mom. Uh, that's the last thing I wanted for my sons. So when, when I divorced their mom, um, less than a year later, my oldest son, who was about 13 at the time, came to live with me full time. I'd have him every other week, but... After a year, he came to live with me full time. And then my other son, a year or two later, came. So it was like, you know, three guys living in a bachelor pad. <laughs> and, you know, I coached them in Little League from T ball to Pony League baseball, basketball, soccer. Um, I really wow. wanted to make sure I stayed involved in their lives. We have a great relationship, have dinners out. Um, Jim, do you think that that's. Do you think that that's a thing? So I always ask, right? So as a police officer, you saw this too, right? And everybody listening, same thing. 
And this is a huge fear of mine as my husband and I gear up to, you know, start a family, uh, both police officers, right? So it's like, you see, you see a lot of cops that have great kids, such as your own. And you see a lot of cops that have really shitty kids. And it's like, oh boy, like how, how, what do you do? Is it just like being in their life? You think, I mean, cause you were very busy, but you made it a point to be like, it like very involved would you say like that was like a defining factor or do you have an opinion on this yeah but I, I mean i think i hold i hold the same truth with cops that all of you know cops that are great cops right you drove by and hey that was on that plate's on the hot sheet or i think that guy's got a gun under his jacket right great cops and then you know cops that are great personalities life of the party friend of everybody will do anything for you. And sometimes it's hard to find somebody who's both. Yeah. Great cop, great person. And I think sometimes, you know, we get this tunnel vision where, hey, I don't have time for that. Whether it's, I'm a family guy, I don't have time to go to that extra training. I can't be away from my family for a week. I'm not paying out of pocket to be reimbursed by my agency. You have that guy, but then you have the other guy who, I'm going to this training, I'm gone every week. I'll be at the range. I'm buying my own reloaders. Like my ammo will be cheaper. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have, they're, they're overboard one way or the other. And I think like anything else, life is about balance and you want to be a good cop, but you want to be a good family person. You want to be a good friend and it takes time and energy and devotion. You have to devote yourself. It, it's not, I mean, for people who can do it without thinking about it, gosh, thumbs up to them, but um, the rest of us have to work at it. That's really good advice. And to focus, focus on being in their lives, right? Like focus on being that family person as well. Yeah. As officer. Yeah. My wife calls me uh, her husband, Buddha, because I'm, I was mindful. I was mindful before mindfulness. I and, love that. Uh, no, not the belly. I don't have the belly though. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> not that Buddha, not that Buddha, but um no, honestly, I think, you know, when you have time to yourself, you have to be good to yourself before you can be good with others. And that's part of the balance too. Can't pour from an empty cup. Hmm. I say that a lot, don't I, mastermind? So um, tell me about your mindfulness. About my mindfulness. Well, my wife is Buddhist. And uh, Love that. yeah, she's trained and um, she's been ordained and uh, I went to a retreat with her when we just got married about 12 years ago. We went to Escondido near San Diego. And uh, it's a Thich Nhat Hanh uh, retreat. And Thich Nhat Hanh's written a couple of books on mindfulness just for cops. And they're pretty good. Um, but it's, it's about thinking about what you're doing and are you doing the right thing for the right reasons? Um, prioritize. I'm talking with uh, an LAPD uh, fitness guy next week, Mark Hildebrand, and I asked him, well, what are you thinking about these days? And he said, it's, uh, it's about your environment and it's about people that you surround yourself with. And I truly believe that. And everybody's, we all have frenemies, right? We all have <laughs> that person that can just be so freaking annoying but for some reason they call and we go, you want to go to the movies? 
it's okay. Oh, I don't have any money. Can you pay for my ticket, right? Or do you want to go out for a drink? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you buy this round? Right. So we have these frenemies, and um, you know, I get invited every year to this New Year's Eve golf tournament, and every year I say oh, I'm not going. Then at last minute I say I go, and then I'm surrounded by these jerks. And I told my wife this year I'm not going. I'm choosing not to go. And that was the last thing I said before I talked to this guy. And he says, why surround your people, negative people or people that you know are going to turn on you? 100%. So 2021, everybody raise your right hand. <laughs> Move away from at least one of those people. Yes, absolutely. So true. I love that. So uh, we do, I, I'm very mindful as well. I do a lot of meditation, box breathing, uh, journaling. Um, I'm very big on, um, so I don't know, are you familiar with Dr. Wayne Dyer? Have you heard of him? No. I bet your wife has. So he's really big. He's really big um, with with like the Buddhists and he, he, he studied uh, Lao Tzu, um, this great spiritual mentor. And um, anyways, very much that, you know, everything's interconnected, but our thoughts are our everything. And if your thoughts are everywhere, and if your head is everywhere, you are not gonna, you know, you're not gonna produce and you're, you're gonna live a miserable life. And, and I, you know, Jim, as we wrap this up, I know I've been talking your ear off, <laughs> but, you know, the thing is about our culture, right? And the policing culture, would you agree that you see a lot of negativity? Totally, way more than a human should see. But what about, but what about in the people? Like, what about in the people? Like you go to, I don't know what your PD was like, but I can tell you what mine was like. And it wasn't exactly like this place of positivity. <laughs> no, I'm sure, you know, as a woman in policing, yeah, that's got its downside, you know, day one, right? But uh, is that what you're talking about? The people you work with? Yeah, I mean, just the whole environment, the culture. I mean, I just felt like every time I was around anybody, we're pulling up car to car, the conversation would start good, then it go to shit within five minutes. Everyone was bitching. <laughs> like, whoa, wait a minute, what just happened? Yeah, I, I think that's another um, cop release, right? Like, it's it's almost like if you talk it out, it's out, right? And um, it's away from you, and it's like at a crime scene decapitation, blood everywhere, and you come out, ha, 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 and remember that time, <laughs> right? And everybody's right. laughing, and the media is watching, and people are watching, and, uh, you know, we have these sense of inappropriate humor, and I think it's, you know, some, something like whistling in the dark, or whistling in through the graveyard, so we want to push these demons away from us, and maybe by talking it out, we get rid of some of it. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's why we do it but um yeah it's hard to steer it back to positive to something positive so that's when you say hey i gotta go right gotta go no kidding absolutely do, do you think now out there did you see a lot of um do you did you have any like officer suicides or are you familiar with any of that yeah yeah i've had a few really yeah i mean sometimes i knew in advance that we had an officer in crisis. So we had a pretty robust um, behavioral science unit. We had, I was a, um, a, a peer support officer. I went to training and um, talked to some cops who reached out. We had a policy that you couldn't reach out to someone, they had to reach out to you. 
I, I didn't always agree with that. I thought we should, you know, we see somebody in a tough situation, we should be able to say, hey, absolutely. You go for a walk, you want to go grab a hot dog or you know, nobody wants to say, let's go have a beer anymore, but I'd say, let's go have a beer. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, maybe, you know, I felt really bad a couple of times when I wanted to reach out to someone didn't, and then they killed themselves. And that's, that's hard to live with. Um, it happened to this, this one woman that I knew, and all of our friends uh, who had seen, she, she attempted once, and uh, a bunch of her friends rallied around her and, um, and then she went to the hospital and then got out and did it for good. And while she was in the hospital, I said, oh, I want to go see her. I want to go see her. And her friend said, oh, no, every, you know, she doesn't want anybody here. And I just regretted never going. Sometimes, though, I would get a call and it would be, hey, chief, uh, sergeant so-and-so is driving down Route 280 and he's got his gun on his lap and he says he's going to do it. Well, what are you going to do then, right? Yeah, that cat's out of the bag. Um, so, you know, for any agency that has uh, behavioral science or has a support unit, it should really have a good policy of communication behind the scenes with confidentiality um, respected, but that pe people need to know. It can't be a depository of one sergeant in charge who keeps everything to himself because then that guy gets burned out or that woman right. sergeant gets burned out right. by holding everybody's crap mm -hmm. and so at least keep supervisors or you know somebody in upper management aware of what's going on and the fear is they're going to take away my gun i'm going to get 5150 i'm going to go you know, to a secure facility. They're not going to let me out. They're going to put me on meds. I'm not going to be a cop anymore. That's the fear, I think. Yes, 100%. Uh, They're going to take my bet. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the numbers, uh, you know, as, as much as people are talking about the numbers of suicide, I think we had a spike last year. We did. Um, for three years in a row leading up to there, it was big, 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 and then really big in 19. And now we're back down. I mean, I wouldn't say average because God, you know, right. average suicides, but suicides are up everywhere. I think it's the times we live in. I think it's, you know, our self-medicating society, our looking for a quick fix, our, you know, depression, COVID certainly didn't help. Right. Um, you know, we're just in this sort of, um, you know, perfect storm of crap right now and i'm looking forward to 2021 and a change comes <laughs> absolutely let's let's hope that happens well what would you say what would you give advice for as we finish up what would you give advice to any you know officer young officer just starting out or you know in the in the beginning of their career what would you give that officer for advice jim you've been around for a minute done some things mm. I'd say be good to yourself and your family first, um, but go the extra mile. Even in the academy, I took the extra training, the um, remedial stuff, even though I didn't need it, just so I could get better at it. Um, if you want to go fly fishing, you don't learn how to tie a knot and then just say, okay, I'm a fly fisherman, right? You really got to put some mm -hmm. reps into it, like anything. So, um, you know, if your agency doesn't reimburse you for good training, go to the good training and, you know, spend a buck. Uh, it'll be worth your while. 
I remember cops uh, telling me all the time, what are you doing? Who are you doing this for? I'm doing it for me. Mm. And then I'd say, you know, be, be a friend to others and um, model the behavior and teach if you can. I mean, I hadn't, I didn't think about teaching once I retired until um, friends of mine who were uh, the chair at a university asked me to, and I, and I, it, it, it dawned on me, I love teaching. And as you can tell from tonight, I love talking. I love talking to people. And, um, you know, I love being a mentor. I tell my students, uh, if you want me to mentor you, that's great, but I want to know who you are. Don't show up, you know, last day of class and say, will you write me a reference letter? So, you know, same applied in policing, um, you know, meet people, mix with people, stay out of clicks, um, you know, find a good mentor and follow that behavior. I, I, I was lucky to follow some really good people. I learned from everybody, a good, good or bad. And uh, after my shooting, um, a sergeant who was the acting lieutenant called me in and asked me what happened. And then after I told him everything, he he talked to somebody on the phone. He called me back in the office and pulled out his Miranda card and read me my Miranda rights. I just shot a guy and he read me my Miranda rights. I'm like, holy shit, what does this mean? Oh. And um, somebody probably said, did you give him his rights, his administrative rights? But the idiot didn't know. And he gave me my Miranda rights. So not a good, smart guy. Every cop I ever talked to after shooting, that was the first thing on my mind. So I remembered that as just an awful way to talk to a cop in a critical situation and to learn from it and never do it. And uh, I think that's where compassion and mindfulness comes back into play. You know, treat victims like someone who was just, you know, involved in horrific situation and think about how they feel and what they're thinking and why they can't remember things and have some compassion and it takes you a long way. Jim, I'm sorry, I have to go. I can't let you off without asking you one last question. I would, can you just, can we know anything about your shoot? Like, I, I'm just like, what happened? Like, I, I would love if, could you just share anything with us about that? Yeah, in my 30-second wrap-up, you want me to tell about my... I, it's not 30 seconds. You can tell me, like, five minutes. I just need to hear about this. <laughs> okay, so um, 1989, um, we always grabbed uh, the warrants uh, and the mugshots of people that were in our sector. And we had known about this one guy for a couple of weeks. He was um, robbing people with a sawed-off shotgun. He had a warrant out for explosives. Uh, he liked to rip off pimps and dope dealers. And so I had his, I had his card along with about six other mugshots in my um, pocket of my uniform. My partner and I are in a black and white. I'm driving, my partner's in the passenger seat and we just took a burglary report. I remember like it was yesterday and it was a Sunday afternoon. It was a Palm Sunday. And we just took a burglary report. We're going to the coffee shop to grab a coffee so he could write up the report. We didn't like to hang reports, knock them out. They're done, right? No end of the shift stuff. So we're heading to the coffee shop and I'm in one lane of a four lane highway roadway. And 
in the opposite direction, I see another car with the guy, Joe Cafaro, in the passenger seat of this other car. So I tell my partner, oh shit, that's Joe Cafaro. And he's like, Joe who? And I give him the stack of it. I go, go find it. His name's on the back. So I pop a U-turn and I'm about four cars behind him now. And he says, you're going to light him up. And I said, well, let's let him get stuck in traffic. It's San Francisco. So drive three blocks and you're stuck behind traffic. Mm -hmm. So we drove three blocks and I said, okay, as soon as we get close, as soon as we hit a red light, put it out on the radio and, and we'll pull a felony car stop on him. We get to the red light and now he's looking over shoulder at us. He saw us make the U-turn in the black and white. And as soon as we slow to a stop, he jumps out of the passenger side and runs through an open window of a bar on Polk Street. And uh, fuck now, so I, now I got another, the driver who I don't know who he is, but I know the guy who just ran has been armed. He's a violent offender, robbery warrants. My partner goes in after him. It's a cowboy, it's a gay cowboy bar. Like a, like an old saloon, sawdust, peanut shells all over the floor. Wow. Beer mugs. I put it out. Headquarters, code 33, ABC 123, Polk in California, car stop, felony, chasing a guy inside, 1083, Polk Street. Boom. Let the mic drop. I figure if the guy takes off in the car, who cares? I don't know who he is, but I know this other guy, and I'm not going to leave my partner with him. I jump through the window and see them running around the back of this huge bar. And as I go in, they both slide on the peanut shells and sawdust, go out <laughs> over tea kettle into the wall on the ground. The guy gets up, he starts heading towards the door. I go block him at the door and he's bigger than me, muscular ex-con. And uh, I'm 5'9", at the time I'm like 5'9", 170 pounds. He hits me and we go rolling out the front doors into, this is how old it was, newspaper racks. Did, wow. are, there any, are there any newspaper racks around anymore? Well, <laughs> we found them, we're wrestling around. I hurt my knee, wrestling him. He's punching me, I'm punching him. He gets up and he's almost away and I grab the back of his jacket and I start to pull it down. And as I pull his jacket down, I get him in a chokehold, in a carotid hold. And it's 1989. I've used the carotid a dozen times. They've always worked. 15, 20 seconds, the guy is out. I put my arm around his carotid to choke off the carotid arteries, to take oxygen to the brain. I start to squeeze and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm fat and happy. Yeah, this is happening. Boom, I hear a gunshot. And I think, son of a bitch, he's got my gun, right? I take a peek down and I could see he's got his arm in the back of his pants and in his back pocket, he started to pull out a small black automatic and the front sight luckily got caught up in his back pocket and he blew out the back of his pants and fired around between my legs down the street holy shit yeah that's what i said holy shit so 
at this point, now I see I've got my own gun still in my holster. And like everything, you know, everything you've heard here, this is an urban legend come true. I smell the gunpowder burning in my nose. I Time slows down. I feel like I got a tiger by the tail. My field of vision goes boop, 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 right? And so I drop to my knees, drop him on his butt, and I'm still holding on. And now I'm trying to hold on to his, his wrist, his right hand. And some of you are probably going, well, where's your partner? Was he like in there having a beer? Where the hell is he? So my partner, Jerry Buckley, he comes running out and slides up between the guy's legs just as the guy pulls the gun. Now he's got the tiger by the tail, both wrists, gun in his hand, and he's bringing it up to Jerry's face. Oh, fuck. And I, I mean, I, I realized this later in my psychology um, uh, exam that years before I had a sergeant who was shot in the head on a traffic stop. And when he had got the guy out of the car and was wrestling with the guy and the guy was holding a gun near his head, another car pulled up with two cops and he's yelling to the cops, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And they're, they're in their car going like, what is he talking about? And the guy shoots him in the head and kills my sergeant. I guess this is what I'm thinking as this guy's pulling the gun up to my partner's face. I'm still got, I still have him in the carotid. I'm trying to hold his arm. And at some point, as I start to rise, I let go of the carotid, I pull my gun and my partner's yelling, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him because he sees the gun coming up to his face. And I shot him. One, one shot, one round. I knew as soon as I shot him, that was it. And um, stood up, grabbed the gun out of his hand, put it in my shirt, like they told us in the academy, put it in my shirt between my vest and my shirt, buttoned it up, put my holster gun back in my holster, called for an ambulance, code three. My partner rolls him over and says, hey, should we handcuff him? I said, he's dead. What are we, what are we gonna handcuff him for? I guess somewhere along the lines, he heard we're supposed to handcuff people even if we shot him. So we did, we handcuffed him and uh, the ambulance came and they put him on the gurney. To their credit, they put him on the gurney and took him away uh, rather than just throw a sheet on him. And uh, yeah, he, he, he died. Um, homicide interviewed me. The district attorney's office interviewed me. Um, no charges filed. They called it a, a good shoot. Um, and uh, the um, district attorney uh, investigator, when it was just he and I in the room, said, do not worry. This is a great shoot. And then the family that, who otherwise would have sued, they knew what an actor this guy was, and they didn't sue. They didn't sue the department. They didn't sue me. Wow. That was the end of it. Cute baby, Jonathan. <laughs> His newborn. Wow, that's a hell of a story. Yeah. Got me a gold medal, some notoriety, got some money out of it. Back in the <laughs> day, back in the day, you got $150 if you got a gold medal. Today it is a month's pay. So I have that check stub still around 150 bucks. Wow. I mean, it was don't don't get me wrong. I'm flippant now, but um, it was a serious time. I really thought 
this is why I really had to think it out. Is this what I want to do? I got two right. young kids. Could have been me on the other end of this thing. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm a Catholic and uh, I guess I'm a Catholic Buddhist. And, uh, you know, since day one in catechism, right? Thou shalt not kill. And that, that's a tough one to get over too. Yeah. So a lot of guilt, a lot of, you know, sleepless nights about what could have right. been done. You know, guys are saying, could you kick him in the face? Could you step on his hand? Could you, you know, no, you can't. Right. I, I mean, I played it out a hundred thousand times in my head. There's nothing else. There's no other way it could have been handled. Right. Yeah. Well, and he made that decision. Yeah. He didn't. So he chose the life. Yeah. Where do people find you, Jim? Well, I'm on uh, Policing Matters uh, podcast at policeone.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbean, wherever you get your iTunes, your podcasting. Uh, I write articles for Police One uh, under a column called Under Oath. And I do this monthly stupid debate with this other guy, Joel Schultz, uh, <laughs> retired chief from Colorado, and it's called State Your Case. And you know, we, we choose two sides of a topic and we're given one side or the other. I totally don't believe in some of the sides I have to take. And we just did one on should cops do traffic enforcement? And I got the no, they shouldn't. So I had to make a case for technology and, you know, cops get killed on traffic stops. So there's no way we should get out of the traffic stop business. Oh my God, I got such hate mail over it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It I read that one actually. Yeah. So of course, you know, people think, oh, this guy hates traffic, doesn't know, you know, somebody, somebody even said, hey, you know, when's the last time this Dudley guy wrote a ticket? And I said, I've written thousands of tickets. I've, <laughs> I've recovered over 150 stolen cars. Um, so anyway, I also have Instagram. I just opened up a new account. Uh, you inspired me, Autumn. Good. It, it's the Policing Matters podcast on Instagram. Woohoo, we'll have to go find you and follow it. Yeah, I'm posting some links there. Awesome. Well, thank awesome. you, Jim. This is yeah, a my pleasure. fantastic hour. We all learned a whole lot. It's really good to get to know you. And uh, we appreciate that. Thank you yeah. for coming on. Yeah, well, you're coming on my show soon. Yeah, I'm excited. We'll have a good time. Holding you to it. Well, great to meet you all. Uh, be careful out there. Uh, good luck in your, your future endeavors and uh, stick with Autumn. She's got some good stuff. Thanks, Jim. Jim, amazing stuff. It was an amazing story. So thank you. They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. <laughs> now I'm baptized in blue. I'm a I'm a never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got grit. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter, never winner, never quit I refuse to lose I got heart and I got busy I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue uh. They bear me in the water in the Holy Ghost I came out with a badge and gun And a heart that said never run I signed up for a job you wouldn't dare to do This ain't no green screen movie, don't Is
ignorant to think we will shoot with your hands up if you the police you feel the world is against you like every call you go to people trying to tempt you well hail mary hail mary hail mary i ride on the devil I ain't scary and i ain't worried you want my life come take it it's gonna be a fight i take you to the light like will and bright i wouldn't expect you to understand what i do only the thin blue line cause they baptized in blue oh uh, i'm a fighter i'm a winner never quit i refuse to lose i got heart and i got gritty i'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue i'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue i'm a fighter I know it was him, but it could have been I What about the kids? Uh, what about the spouse? Yeah, now who gon' put food inside them babies' mouth? It's a bigger picture when the officer down Domino effect, Blue Nation, family, country, and town The media don't cover us huh. Well, maybe Fox, cause MSNBC and CNN Surely don't care about cops, politicians More concerned about protecting the legal Instead of laying the law down And protecting the people Let me get off my soapbox Before I curse, I don't see way too many cops Riding in hearse, well I wouldn't expect you to understand What I do, only the thin blue light Cause they baptized Blue, um. I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior That's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter I'm gonna complete it if that means being deleted. I live with the credence. I do this for the combat vets and LEOs when I'm suited, ready to go. It's either friend or foe. Only Lord knows what my future's in store. I only kill with the hope to see more. So God don't close that door. If I take a life, it's him or me. With the host to survive, not big a tree. I go in situations that you cannot imagine. Deal with things that you cannot fathom. No, it buts or rather. I'd rather fight for cause than live for nothing. So when you read my headstone, you know I died for something. You hypersensitive, she complain by justified force. You blame the cops first, that don't work, you blame the courts. But I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do, only the thin blue line. Cause they baptized in blue arm. Oh, I'm a fighter. When I never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior That's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter, number when I never quit I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior That's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue uh.